New research into the human brain reveals the remarkable ability to acquire new knowledge and skills throughout our lives. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Conventional wisdom about the brain says we learn best in the first five years of life. After that, it grows increasingly difficult to absorb new information, such as a language, musical instrument, or new skill set. Now we're discovering that this assumption is wrong. New revelations about how the brain learns are emerging from the still-developing field of educational neuroscience. Today on the show, I'm speaking with a leading researcher in that area. He is Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath of the Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne, Australia. We'll learn what educational neuroscience is and what it tells us about the brain's ability to keep learning new stuff as long as we have the right mental attitude. For example, stress can be both a positive and negative factor in learning. Dr. Horvath's findings take us out of primary education and into the business world, where it's crucial to learn new skills in order to stay relevant. Every human being can learn every skill in the world, he says. So here is my conversation with Jared Cooney Horvath. Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm fascinated by this discipline referred to as educational neuroscience. Could you tell me what that is and how long that's been around? Yeah, so the field as it is stands now has been around probably for about 10 years. And the idea was pretty simple, is as the kind of neuroscience, the brain stuff started to really tick away in the lab, a bunch of people started to stand up to say, okay, how can we start to apply all these brain findings. Like we've got all these brain scans, these images, how can we make use of them in the real world? So one group of us stood up and said, cool, we want to try to apply that directly to education for schools, for teachers, for students, for trainers to say, all right, if we know that the brain works in this way, how can that help us teach and learn better in the classroom? So there's not a huge field of us. I think we're in about seven universities now but you can start to really feel it kind of get legs, start picking up where people are doing more and more applied brain research specifically for learning and teaching. Now, you know, there is a lot of, I don't know how to put this, but there are some very trendy disciplines out there that start with the word neuro, neuro this, neuro that, it, it, to the point where I think even you have acknowledged the possibility that in some cases it could almost be seen as a cult. The question oh, yeah. is, why neuroeducation? Why does that stick? Why do you think over any of these others that may or may not be quite as legitimate in, in terms of avenues of science and investigation? No, that's a wonderful question. And to be fair, if I'm being honest, I think probably within the next three to four years, they'll change the name because I, I think you're right. There's this issue of trying to connect totally random fields and finding that there's too big of a gap between them to be meaningful. So the neuro is the new one where everyone's just throwing neuro in and saying, well, if we talk the brain, then we can solve all this other stuff. And I think that, that kind of fails in things like marketing and aesthetics. There's not a huge science base behind what they're trying to do, so it becomes really tricky. And I think you'll see the same thing with neuroeducation. Where we're kind of pushing now is called science of learning. 
So rather than just being locked down to only the brain, what we all do now is we jump between neuroscience, psychology, ecology, economics, sociology, whatever fields we need to kind of pull out principles of teaching and learning. So I think you're absolutely right. The neuro, I think, is still people use it just because it's still a sexy name. But eventually we have to step away from it and say, okay, this is way more than just neuroscience in education. This is every bit of science we have being applied to education to see what we can do. And what you're saying to me now suggests to me that neuroeducation is less an issue of biology than it is psychology and some of the other higher level disciplines that you just described. In other words, you're not really focused on the tissue of the brain and how the brain works at, that, at the cellular level, but more at an upper level kind of thing. Would that be accurate to say? Bingo, yep. Neuroscience has about seven different levels to it. And the only real applicable levels for the majority of stuff is the cognitive neuroscience level, which is exactly as you say, it's the kind of bigger, major functional units rather than the cellular wet lab type stuff. Now, to be fair, I used to work down at the hospital in Boston, so we were developing drugs. And at that level, you get down to the cellular stuff. But really, unless you have a learning disorder or a disability or there's something biologically wrong with your body or brain, all of that stuff becomes totally meaningless in the neurotypical world, as we call it. So unless you're designing a drug or designing a brain stimulation tool, you got to sit high. You have to sit on the behavioral level. Now, there's a lot of talk these days about so-called 21st century skills of critical thinking. And I'm wondering, what new discoveries since the turn of the century have upended our understanding of this capacity of mental processes? What's the latest thinking that has sort of changed the way that we look at this whole issue? What I love about science of learning stuff is when you really start to dig into the lit, people have known about learning for, I would argue, 120 years. And really, the story hasn't changed. It's just how we've come to kind of understand and apply it. Take something like this critical thinking 21st century skill. It feels new. It feels sexy. When in actuality, it's been around forever. People have always been kind of discussing this capacity, how to build it, how it works. And where we're sitting now is, I think we had this big push, especially by industries, where they said, okay, what do we need for future employees? We need critical thinking, creativity, all these other skills. So they sounded new and school said, yeah, we'll try and teach those. But at the end of the day, <laughs> the scary thing is you can't directly teach a competency. It's impossible for me to teach you how to critically think. What I can teach you is content, is field knowledge, is processes. I can teach you about something, and then once you know about something, you can apply your critical thinking skills. But I can't just give you an all-purpose critical thinking skill that once you have it, it's a free flow. You can throw it into any field and apply it wherever you want to. And I think an easy kind of explanation for that is if you're watching baseball and you and I are talking about it, we can talk plays, we can talk bad calls, we can talk ground rule doubles all day. But I live in Australia now where no one's ever watched a game of baseball. They watch cricket. So all of our critical thinking skills, as soon as I watched cricket for the first time, I had no clue what the heck was going on. I couldn't. It doesn't matter that I have these great creative critical thinking skills in when I'm watching baseball. As soon as I watch a sport, a field that I don't understand, I'm back to an idiot. I can't even figure out what one <laughs> foot in front of the other is. So this is where we get those competencies where we realize they're there, but we can't directly start by just teaching those and say, okay, you have a certificate in crit thinking. Congratulations. Go get a job anywhere. 
you have to start at the beginning of every bit of learning. And that beginning is almost always content, field-specific content. I still can't figure out what's happening in a cricket game, and I believe me, I have tried. Oh, man, (laughs) it uh, is one of the uh, weirdest sports I've ever seen. It is. Now, this next question may betray my own cynicism more than anything else, so I apologize for that if that's the case. But just as a starting point, I wonder if you believe that we are rational creatures after all. If anyone learns through reasoning and logical argument, or if we need to get past these the logical substrate of our brains in order to really get through to people. No, I think we have this really, and you can thank the Dan Kahnemans and such of the world, and I don't think they meant to do this, but we have this kind of belief that there's the irrational and then the rational, that there's this kind of subconscious, emotional you, and then this higher level thinking you. The two are so intertwined that you cannot separate them. We, we've found people with brain diseases where you've got some people that have zero emotion, so they're purely logical, and they are frozen. They can't move. They can't make even the simplest of decisions, which shows that you need emotions to rein in rationality. Then we've got people who've lost the front of their brain and they're highly reactive with zero rationality and they're completely dead. They just sit there and don't really speak or do anything at all, which shows you need kind of this higher thinking to make sense of this deeper emotional stuff. So I never draw a strict line between the rational and the irrational. You cannot have deep thinking without emotions. You can't have emotions without deep thinking. I can see why people have drawn the line. It kind of makes it easier to think and talk about certain phenomena, but at the end of the day, you can't pull them apart. And so what I find is with learning, the good news is, is there is a trajectory. So regardless of who you are, what you're learning, every human being ticks the same boxes as they move along the learning process. Take anything you've learned, you can backtrack and say, oh, that's where I did that, that's where I did that, that's where I did that. And so that progression kind of moves from simple to deep. And the deeper you get with knowledge in a particular field, the more you can start to what we then say, critically think, debate, evaluate your concepts. And that's where I kind of think most people say, well, that's the deep rational stuff. So in that instance, yet you need to go through that I don't want to say rote memorization, but that kind of nitty gritty surface learning before you can get to that real deep, pondering, creative, innovative type of thinking that you might be thinking of when you say rational thought. And so we, when we think in Kahneman's terms of thinking fast or slow, there's really not or. It's really yeah. thinking fast and slow, isn't it? Yeah. Bingo. What's cool is, is the thinking fast with Kahneman, that's a very biological thing. It still requires rationality. It's just we would be exhausted if every decision we had to make became purely rational. So that's the idea of heuristics. It's a biological shortcut where the entire body says, cool, what we're going to do is we're going to swing the pendulum a little more towards the emotion side. You still got to think. You can't just have your brain off. But we're going to use what we call gut feelings to know when a decision is good enough. So take, this is going to be weird, but take the, one of the people that we know that lost their emotional centers of their brain so they became essentially purely rational. And what's cool, think, when you hear this story, think about things like computers. When people talk about AI, this is why a lot of people are leery about AI, because people like him. So he comes out, no emotions, purely rational. And you say, okay, I need you to sign your name. Here's a blue pen or a black pen. What do you want? And all of a sudden, this guy becomes hogtied. He can't just make the stupidest decision between a blue pen and a black pen. <laughs> because there's so many variables that he starts to rationalize through. So 
the black pen might have better contrast than the blue pen, but the blue pen has a soft grip, which is nice, but there's more ink in the black pen, but the blue pen has a clip and he never <laughs> makes a decision because he just keeps rationalizing. So at some point we know that in order to make any decision, you have to get that gut feeling and say, cool, all these facts and variables aside, the blue pen feels better. I'm going with it. And there's where Kahneman yeah. steps up. Thinking fast is when you get a gut feeling really rapidly because you've experienced and learned so much stuff. And 99% of the time, the gut feeling works great. The slow thinking is how you build the fast thinking. But eventually, if the gut feeling falls away, you have to go back into that slow, deep pondering to actually get to an answer. Now, it's interesting. You yourself have taken pains to distinguish emotions versus feelings. And I'm wondering what is the difference between those two things in your mind? Which of those is a path to learning and which is an obstacle? Ooh, that is awesome. At the end of the day, I think <laughs> that's really cool. So the way I describe it, and this will make it help make sense of the next statement. So emotions are physical sensations. They're the chemicals floating through your body. So when we say you have a racing heart, or clammy skin, or tingly stomach. Those are emotions. Feelings are the mental interpretation of those emotions. So I've got a racing heart. What you do is you've got what we call the interpreter. So your body starts reacting in a certain way. Chemicals are flowing. You're getting tingles or itches or something. Your interpreter looks around the world and says, okay, why might I be sensing this right now? It assigns those sensations to a specific thing around you, and then you generate a feeling. So you go, okay, tingly skin, racing heart, what might that be? Oh, look, there's a spider. It must be fear. Once you've assigned those sensations to that spider, then you get the mental feeling of fear. And then you get this feedback loop and things start to change. So emotions, the physical sensations, you can't turn those off. Those suckers are always on. And when we talk about boosting learning through sensation, that's one of the big things we're talking about is what's your bodily chemical milieu and how is that impacting your learning? But the feeling, once you select a feeling, that has a big ramification. So if you select a very wonky feeling, that could actually turn off your ability to focus, to learn, to zoom in. So stress is a big one. If I select stress as a feeling in the short term, that could boost my learning. We know small levels of stress actually help you remember things better. But if I continue to select stress day in and day out, then all of a sudden my ability to learn just falls through the floor. I cannot do it if I want to or not. So we see it in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Kids who are highly stressed during learning all the time in school learn next to nothing. Employees who are all stressed all the time at work learn next to nothing. It's because that feeling of stress feeds back and changes the way the brain works to kill memory function. Does it also cause us to put up our natural biases, the walls we put up against learning new things? Does stress contribute to that as well, at the point where you have to get around that in order to get to people? Absolutely. So we'll say one of the, the appetizer of learning, if you really want to learn something, we say you got to get your mind right first. And that is you got to select the right feelings. Even if it's a scary situation, rather than stress, you're selecting feelings like excitement, intrigue, curiosity. And then you have to know that you can learn something. And that is a pure mental game. Whether you think you can learn something or whether you think you can't, that will determine whether or not the new information actually sticks. So if you go into a new learning situation and say, nah, I ain't going to do stuff, you can practice for 10 hours, but all that new information doesn't find a home. 
But if you choose, okay, you know what? If I put the effort in, I can learn this. Then those 10 hours of practice actually get stuck and you can start to move forward. So choose the right emotion, at least shut down the stress response, and then choose the idea that you can learn and do this. That doesn't substitute learning, but that's what we call the appetizer of learning. Get that right. And now we can go into real learning and really make sure this stuff is going to find a home inside of your brain, inside of your body. But when it comes to applying these ideas directly to actual curriculums in the classroom, are there different types of subjects that lend themselves better to this approach? Let's say math versus reading. And I know it's extremely reductive to claim that those are two entirely different things in a brain, like I'm a math person, I'm a, I'm a language person or whatever. I know that's a fallacy to even say that. But is it the case that one of those areas is a better target for this type of thinking? Or is it all types of things that we learn that can be enriched by this approach? It is across the board so far as we've seen. The differences between, you make a great point, between, say, reading and math tend to be pure preference. It's just what do people find easier? What have they found easier in the past? And whatever they found easier, they tend to pursue that more deeply. So I become a math person or I become a reader and the other becomes more difficult for me. But it was all from a choice at the beginning. So at the end of the day, we say any level of learning from sports to skills to cognition, everything you do follows the same path. And if you can get your mind right at the beginning, we call it learning to learn. If you know how to enter into the learning game, you're going to do a lot better once you start ticking those boxes down the path. And like I said earlier, the, the learning trajectory is the same across the board. If it's reading, math, golf, we'll still go through those same steps of surface knowledge into deeper into transfer of knowledge. So it doesn't matter what the topic is. We all do it the same. But I also think we define ourselves at a very early age about what we're good at and what we're bad at. Yeah. And when something comes at us that we decide we're bad at, let's say I'm a math idiot, for instance, we seize up. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to learn. We can't learn somehow. Somehow something has to get around that prejudice that we put on ourselves, does it and not? And that's where, yeah, I think you make a, a great point. A lot of people think, okay, I'm born with certain skill sets. Turns out, from all of our research, most people are they're not definitely not born with any innate skills. But what happens is, is they have hardships throughout their childhood. So by the time you're our age and you say, I'm a math person or a reading person, it's not because you were particularly good at math or reading. It's because you had negative experiences with and were bad with all the other stuff. So me, I can't dance, or so I say, but that largely comes from the fact that Probably when I was a kid, I tried to dance. Someone laughed, and I said, well, that's something I'm not good at. The only thing that no one's ever laughed at me at has been neuroscience, so that's all I'm ever going to do. So we don't even choose our preferences from what we're good at. We seem to choose them from what we struggle with. And you're right. So step number one, and we go back to that idea of getting your mind right, is when you recognize that the brain is ridiculously malleable, the only thing it does is change which means every human being can learn every skill in the world. The brain is set up to learn. The only hindrance is whether or not you're going to allow yourself to go through that process. So step one, get your mind right. Figure out how your brain works and learn that you're in charge of that machine. And once you get that right and you say, okay, I can do this, now everything's going to stick. And magically, you'll find yourself getting good at math. 
That's an interesting statement. But do you believe, though, that the brain is equally malleable throughout one's lifetime? I mean, I thought it's received wisdom that small children learn better certain things than older people, like picking, they pick up language much easier than we do in adult life. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I want to know how these theories apply to the business world, to mature people, to career skills, to leadership skills. Aren't we, in fact, different in the way we learn as we get older, or is that a fiction also that we're telling no. ourselves? The way we learn is, so far as we can tell, the same from when you're in the womb till the day you're in the grave. That never changes. What changes is, and there's a very specific window between about birth and about five years old, where the number of synapses in your brain, where the brain is talking to itself, those points of communication, they have about five times more. When you're a child, you have about five times more than you do as an adult. When I say adult, I mean six, seven years old. That's when you get to adult levels of synapses. So the only thing that happens in young kids is things stick a lot faster. They go through the same learning process. They just only need one exposure, one repetition, one thought, and they can form what's called a semantic memory. Whereas as adults, and again, by adults, I mean seven years old, eight years old, so just beyond the age of five, that's when you start to need multiple repetitions to form a semantic memory and to start moving along the learning trajectory. Beyond five, everyone learns the same way. And your brain, I don't care if you're 10 years old or 80 years old, your brain will remain as malleable, changeable, fixable, plasticizable, whatever you want to call it. It will continue to learn so long as you ask it to do that. So take that level of synapses. So between zero and five, your brain essentially explodes. Between five and eight to 10, it comes to adult levels. We, then we always said from, say, about 10 to 65, it stayed stable. And then at 65, it just kind of decreased, and then you died. And for the longest time, we thought, yep, yeah, biologically, hit 65, and I'm sorry, your brain just starts to deteriorate. You can't learn. You can't think. Have a good one. Turns out that was a completely sociological, not biological effect. What do most people do when they're 65? Retire. Bingo. It's a retirement thing. Once you retire, you stop thinking, mm -hmm. you stop reading, you stop doing new things, you get a routine, you eat in the morning, play golf in the afternoon, sleep at night, boom. That routine is what was causing the brain to deteriorate. As soon as you take a 65-year-old and say, cool, you're retired, but you're going to learn new things. You're going to go learn a language. You're going to pick up an instrument. You're going to play a sport, whatever. As long as we keep them working, the brain stayed fine. Till they were 80, 90, 100 years old, their brain looked like they were 10 years old. We now know that the brain is never going anywhere. It's just how you choose to use it. The way you got to start thinking about the brain is we tend to say it's a driver. It's not. The brain is a passenger. It's the most passive thing in the universe. Whatever you ask it to do, it will adapt and say, cool, let's do that from now on. So when you're 60, 70, 80, so long as you keep working your brain and saying, you know what, I want you to do this, the brain will go, oh, fine, and it will change and allow you to do that. You drive it. It does not drive you. Well, that is really heartening to know that that is the case, especially for people in the business world looking to apply their career skills to new areas in which they can grow and learn. I would like to also to direct our listeners to some of your previous work. A couple of years ago, you wrote a, a book called From the Laboratory to the Classroom, Translating Science of Learning for Teachers. You wrote that with Jason Lodge and John Hattie, so I'm going to link to that in the show notes to our episode 
But in the meantime, Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath, we could talk so much longer about this. I'm afraid we're out of time. However, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for helping us to understand this new and developing area of neuroeducation, and we'll be very interested to see where it all goes. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I had a really great time. That was my conversation with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath of the University of Melbourne, talking about the human brain's amazing ability to keep learning throughout our lives. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.